Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 as we continue our series through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5. And uh, thus far we've learned that Nehemiah was confronted in a different challenge in each chapter. Chapter 1 was a personal challenge when he heard about what was happening in Jerusalem. He sat down and he wept and then broke out into prayer. In chapter 2, his challenge was political, and when the king asked him what he needed, he prayed a sort of uh, on-the-spot prayer, and he boldly made his request to the king. In chapter 3, he was confronted with an administrative challenge by positioning the right workers in the right place for the right reasons. Chapter 4, he dealt with the challenge of discouragement. The workers were afraid of the enemies and convinced that they couldn't work anymore. Nehemiah rallied the troops to come together under the pressure that was there. And now as we come to chapter 5, this same community is starting to self-destruct because of some festering grievances. The workers now face a new enemy who is harder to conquer than the previous ones. The timing could not have been worse because the walls were almost done. Nehemiah has put down his hard hat and he's turned his attention from the construction of the wall to the walls that were being put up between his workers. And while their external enemies helped to rally the people, the internal conflict threatened to divide them and to destroy them. I, uh, in light of the... uh, Let's see, the Belmont was yesterday, right? The Belmont race, and we have another Triple Crown winner. Uh, And um, in light of thoroughbred horses or uh, that kind of thinking, I don't know if you're a a horse racing fan, uh, but uh, thoroughbred horses, when they face an enemy attack, they stand in a circle facing each other, and then they kick their legs out back. Donkeys, on the other hand, are just the opposite. They make a circle and they uh, face the threat while using their hind legs to kick each other. (laughs) Well, it's much easier to conquer and subdue an enemy who attacks us from without than it is sometimes to forgive and restore a friend who hurts us. And so many times we have enemies from within that are threatening to divide us and to threaten us. Let me just remind you again of what Psalm 55, verse 12 through 14 says, For it was an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me, that did magnify himself against me, then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide, and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in company. And I trust as we look at this particular chapter this morning that it will not only challenge us in our individual spiritual growth, but our growth as a church, our growth as families. And I hope it will be very uh, practical because we too are facing enemies within. We are facing enemies within our lives, within our families, and within our church. And so notice with me, first of all, this morning, the complaints. The complaints. In verses 1 through 5, 
there, there's a word here in verse 1 that kind of sets the tone. It says in verse 1, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. Uh, the word that kind of sets the tone is the word against. In other words, strife was brewing, tension was mounting, horns were locked, and we will look at some of the complaints that they heard here uh, in verses 1 through 5. It says in verse 2, For there were that said, We are sons and our daughters are many, therefore we take up corn for them, and we may eat and live. Some also were that said, We have mortgaged our lands and our vineyards and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute and that unto our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as flesh of our brethren and our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in their power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. I want you to notice in the first verse there, that word great. In the midst of a great work that we saw in chapter 4, verse 19, and it was a great work for a great God, in verse chapter 1, verse 5, here we see a great cry. A great cry of the people and of their wives against the brethren of the Jews. This is not just a little disagreement, just not a minor uh, problem here. They weren't crying out against the Samaritans or the Ammonites. They were crying out against one another. Maybe you remember a few years ago, some of the great hurricanes that made history in our country, like Hurricane Andrew or Ivan, uh, uh, and then uh, that was in uh, Florida, and then Katrina was in New Orleans. And after the storm, we got a glimpse of the greed of some of the people. While there were many who reached out to help, there were others who saw this as an opportunity to take advantage of those in need of price gouging and stealing. And that's a similar thing that we see here in our text. city of Jerusalem is lying in ruins and people are powerless to help themselves. Taxes are high and because of a long drought, there's bad famine most everyone has been working with all their hearts to build the walls, but there are others who are alarming acts of greed resulted in widespread poverty and justice. Now at this point, I want to do one of those rabbit trails on purpose. So hold your thought there. You know, I, I uh, think rabbit trails can be helpful sometime. But turn, hold your place and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to I look at a, a little rabbit trail I think is worthy of our time here in light of what's going on with Nehemiah and the people and the enemy that's within and the complaining. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. Now, could that at at all describe anything that's going on in our lives or the life of our church? You say, well, that's pretty serious stuff, Pastor. We know that that's going on out there. But is it going on in here? I want you to notice several things here that you find in what we're going to call rebellion. Rebellion, first of all, is rooted in self-love. Self-loathing and shame over sin is in God's eyes a precious thing. Wherever the sinner sees his sin and mourns brokenly over it and loathes himself for it when God calls him blessed. But Paul says that men shall be lovers of their own selves. I think that was a problem back in Nehemiah's day. Now, we wouldn't consider Nehemiah's day the last days, maybe, but we're in the last days. And we see that as a problem. From this self-love comes covetousness, boasting, pride, evil speaking of others, and of God. Call them blasphemers. I think it reminds us of Absalom in 2 Samuel 14, verse 25. But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty from the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head. And there was no blemish in him. His love of himself led him to despise his father, David. And then he went on to rebel against him and expel him from the kingdom for a time before being defeated and killed by his father's loyal soldiers. Absalom reminds us of the day in which we live where there's lawlessness and rebellion against authority. We see it all around. But notice also, it begins with defying of parents. I want you young people uh, to uh, pay attention to this. Because this rebellion begins in the home, the foundation of all order in society. When order breaks down in the home, then it is inevitable it's going to break down in society, generally. And I really don't need to remind you of the trend we see going on today. Paul makes this very clear in verse 2 here. The word disobedience comes from the word which means anti-obedience. It's not an occasional disobedience. But it's an attitude of disobedience. And again, it reminds me of Absalom, the attitude that is encouraged today through television, through various publications, even in our public schools, is disrespect for parents. Confrontation with parents is frequently featured in young people's programs and cartoons. Invariable, the, invariably, the parents are uh, depicted in these programs and cartoons as being out of touch and vindictive, and the young are victimized. And in the end, the young are proved right, according to the stories that you see. Young people today have been encouraged to set up their own kingdoms within their own homes. Many have responded to the, encur- to the encouragement so that their room becomes a do not enter for mom and dad. 
And there they listen to what they like, they watch what they like, they read what they like, and they cover their walls of the room with posters and pictures that depicts just where their hearts are and what they consider to be important in their lives. The important people and things. That's the spirit of our age. And we're moving closer to an out-and-out rebellion against God, who is the author of all authority. And then we see it spreads. Paul shows us that from a love of self, man moves to oust all rivals of his love, and his rebellion spreads from the home to society until it reaches the throne of God. And lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God is a description of many in our society today. And then fourthly, it opposes God. You see what is love today. Self, pleasure, other people's property. See what is hated. That which ought to be naturally loved, parents and neighbors and good things, are hated today. And then it becomes a religion. As Paul says in verse 5, having a form of godliness... It's not a formless rebellion, but it seeks to replace true religion. It's the rebellion of Cain and the Tower of Babel revived. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Such then is the trend that is developed in these last days under the influence of the devil who's called Satan, the adversary that oppose good and oppose God. Now, some may, of you may wonder, what's that have to do with Nehemiah? Well, we're not rebuilding walls of a temple. We're not building, rebuilding the walls of a city. But listen, young people, there are those who are trying to build a godly family and a church ministry that honors God. There are those who are trying to build your lives for the glory of God. And we may not be doing a very good job of it, but God is still holding each one of us responsible, whether we be the parent or a grandparent or a child in the home. So let's not be a complaining, rebellious people. Rebellion is what we have described here. And I've just made a little bit of a up-to-date application of this that Paul gives us in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. But let's go back to Nehemiah, and we'll find four different groups of people who are involved in the community there in this crisis. First of all, there's people who own no land, but they needed food. And we see that in verse 2. Population was increasing, the families were growing, there was famine and the people were hungry. They were working so hard on the wall, they didn't have time to plant their gardens. They didn't have time to take care of their crops. And then you have landowners who had mortgaged their property in order to buy food. Inflation was on the rise and prices were going higher and many of their homes were repossessed by the money lenders. Another group complained that taxes were too high. In verse 4, many people were forced to borrow money just to pay their tax bills. Well, that sounds like 2015, doesn't it? 
And then there's those that are exploiting others. Verse 5. The wealthier making loans with exorbitant interest rates and taking land and even children as collateral. Families had to choose between starvation and servitude. And when the crops failed because of the famine, the creditors took away their property and they even sold their children into slavery. Now, it's not against the law. I don't think it's even against God's law to loan money to someone else. But we're not to act like a pawn shop owner or a banker who charges high interest when lending money to fellow Jews. Uh, That's clearly stated here in the book of Deuteronomy. It says there, Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury, unto a stranger that mayest lend upon usury. But unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, and the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to do in the land, whether thou goest to possess it. So here are some of the complaints that were made against Nehemiah. And it reminds me of some of the complaints we hear about today. Some of the rebellion that's taken place in our day. So how do we deal with it, or how did Nehemiah deal with it? We look at the steps Nehemiah took. In verse 6 says, And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Nehemiah heard their complaints, and now he says, I'm angry. It lit him up. It wasn't just that Nehemiah had a short fuse or a bad temper. The Bible does call for righteous anger, and Moses expressed this kind of anger when he broke the stone tablets of the law in Exodus 32. Jesus was filled with a holy rage when he saw the Pharisees' hard hearts in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, and when he cleared out the temple in Luke chapter 19. So Nehemiah is upset. And verse 7 says that he took the time to consult with himself about the charges before he accused the nobles and the officials. He says, when I, Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother, and I set a great assembly against them. Instead of just going off on the people in the heat of a moment, Nehemiah paused, he took a deep breath, and he thought about it for a while. You know, sometimes I think that's what we need to do. We need to consult with ourselves. Not that we're going to listen to our own advice. (laughs) Sometimes that can be dangerous, you know. But I know, I think we do need to sit and think about something for a while. Proverbs 16.32 challenges us. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. And so after thinking about these things for a while, Nehemiah decides to confront the people whose selfishness had created the strife. And since it involved the whole nation, he demanded a public rebuke and repentance. And the rebuke consists of six different appeals. Number one, he appealed to their love. Verse 7. Nehemiah reminded them that they were robbing their own countrymen, not the Gentiles. He uses the word brother and brethren four different times in his little speech to them. And Psalm 133 and verse 1 must have been echoing in his minds, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. 
excuse me, I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's Proverbs, Proverbs 16.32. But he must have been thinking of some, some of these principles as he was, he was ready to give them his little speech. And then he reminded them of God's redemptive purpose, verse 8. He said, I said unto them, we after our ability have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held, their, held they their peace and found nothing to answer. God's people had been redeemed from Egypt. And most recently they'd been redeemed from Babylon. And Nehemiah himself had brought back some of the Jews who were in slavery. And their fellow Jews were following or returning people into bondage just to make money. His appeal then was based on God's word. Verse 9, Nehemiah calls them on the carpet. He says, it is not good that you do. He's saying, what you are doing just isn't right. And we've already learned they're going against God's clear commands. And some of the things that we see going in our country is not right. Some of the things that we see going on in our families is just not right. It's going against God's clear commands. And then, fourthly, they needed to remember their witness. In verse 9, again, Israel was to be the light to the nations, but their behavior was dark and shady. They were to, as it says here, ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? Because you're not right in your relationship with God, you're not able to make a positive impact upon those around. And instead of making people thirsty for God, you've lost your saltiness. And he appealed to the remember your, their witness. He appealed to his own actions, verse 10 and verse 11. In verse 10, he says there, uh, I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine and the oil and that you exact of them. Nehemiah lent money, but he didn't charge any interest. He had integrity when he told the other money lenders to stop what they were doing. And then, sixthly, he appealed to their, the judgment of God. Now, I, I love verse 12 because it shows that they really wanted to do what was right. And they didn't have to wait and think about it. It says, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Since they had promised to obey, Nehemiah made them take an oath to present uh, to, to the presence of the priest. And there was a way of saying that the promise was not just between the bankers and the builders, but between them and the Lord. Nehemiah then concluded his special business meeting with these uh, in verse 13. And it shows us the seriousness of what they decided to do. It tells us there in verse 13, and I shook my lap. <laughs> you say, what's that mean? It means he shook 
the folds of his robe, which symbolized what God would do if they broke their vow. And then we notice there in verse 13, And all the congregation said, Amen. What does Amen mean? So be it. So be it. It made the uh, entire assembly a part of the decision there. And they praised God in unison. What started as a great cry of outrage led to a confrontation, which led to a commitment to change and concluded with shouts of praise in a corporate worship service. And so we see the complaints that Nehemiah heard. We see the steps that he took. And then thirdly, we see the example that Nehemiah set. In verses 14 through 19, in describing his own lifestyle during this period, Nehemiah's memoirs tell us how he behaved. He was motivated by two biblical principles during the 12 years he was governor of the land of Judah. He devoted He was devoted to the great commandment as later spelled out by the Lord Jesus himself in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. It says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And before thinking about how he could make a profit, he considered what was pleasing to God. And in verse 15, he describes how previous governors got wealthy at the expense of the people. And when comparing himself with others, Nehemiah stated, but so did not I because of the fear of God. He feared God. He reverenced him. And then in verses 17 and 18, we see that he did not live extravagantly, extravagantly, but instead lived generously by providing meals for others and not using his expense account to do so. He loved and revered God. He loved the people he was called to serve. And that's a great example for us to follow. Start first by focusing on God and your relationship with him. And as you do, you'll have more love and compassion for others, even those you are in conflict with. And so that brings us to the principles to ponder here. Having walked through a kind of a a brief exposition of this passage, let me just draw out some principles for us to think about as we uh, finish our message this morning. First of all, our our mission and our treatment of others is related. There's a direct correlation between the effectiveness of our mission and how we treat one another. We must be the church before we can build the church. We must care for one another before we can hope to reach this community and this county for Christ. And so our mission and treatment of others is related. Secondly, relational problems are inevitable. You know, we can't ignore them. Even though it's painful, it may seem easier to avoid and deny relational problems, but we must face conflict head on. If we don't, we'll pay for it because it's going to go underground. It's going to grow some deep roots and there's going to be a root of bitterness. I've heard it put this way. The first price you pay is always the cheapest. It's painful painful to stop strife, but it'll only get more difficult the longer we wait. 
And then we must restore relationships. We must make, take the initiative whether we want to or not. Don't wait for the other person to come to you. You need to go to them. If you've been hurt, go and talk to them as Jesus commanded us. And if you've been the one that's hurt, go and confess. What, or if you did the hurting uh, to someone else, go and confess it to them. What you did according to what Jesus told us there in Matthew chapter 5. And then fourthly, God's reputation. Realize that God's reputation is at stake. And this is true anytime in conflict. John 17, 23, Jesus prayed that lost people would know God's heart of love when brothers and sisters in Christ are brought together in a complete unity. Let's be like Nehemiah. Let's walk in the fear of God to not only avoid reproach of unbelievers, but also to make God attractive to those who need him. And we can do that by living in a loving community with one another. Now then there's some action for dealing with strife. Came across, uh, this is not really a part of your outline here on your notes, but I came across this, how to turn disagreement into a feud. I wonder how many times many of us have done that. We've turned a disagreement into some uh, an all-out war. And that's the wrong way to deal with strife. Avoid conflict so your feelings build up and then you explode. That's not what we need to do. Be vague in general when you share your concerns to other people uh, who cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Assume that you know all the facts and you're totally right. Avoid possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. You know, those are things that will really cause us to have a a real conflict if there's not one already. But I want to focus in the last few minutes here on some practical action steps you and I can do to stop strife. And these are right out of Nehemiah chapter 5. First of all, make sure it's a moral issue. Nehemiah was very angry because of the injustice he saw there back in verse 6. And if you've been wronged and sinned against, your anger could be justified. But on the other hand, if you're just ticked off at someone because they've done something you don't like, well, then it's not a moral issue. Then we've got to maybe cut them some slack and maybe act in grace. Maybe it's just a disagreement in our opinion. An opinion is something that's not always based on fact. Make sure it's a moral issue. It's something that's, that's really worth being upset about. Think before speaking. If you've been sinned against, then take some time to ponder and how you feel about it. That's what Nehemiah did. Chapter, uh, uh, verse 6 or 7 He first consulted with himself. He thought, well, I better think about this a little bit. You know, my actions and my words could possibly cause deeper problems, so I better be careful. And then meet face to face. Someone has said confrontation is caring enough about another person to get conflict on the table and talk about it. And face to face is not Facebook, okay? Face-to-face is not a text. 
How many times have you gotten a text from somebody and say, what did they mean by that? Were they mad at me or were they happy with me? You know, that's what smiley faces are for. <laughs> but Jesus commanded us in Matthew 18, we're to be direct with people that we have a problem with. Nehemiah went to the source in verse 8. He confronted the people uh, with what they had done wrong. And we ignore this critical step. We often end up talking to someone else about what we've been offended about when it was not them that we should be talking to, but it was we were offended by someone else's action, but we're going to the wrong person. If you go to a third party, you create a communication triangle. And so you need to go directly to the person you have a conflict with. And if someone comes to you to express anger at someone else, Maybe their first question should be, have you talked to them? How about you and I go and talk to them? (laughs) That'll stop it probably right there. Meet face to face. And then seek resolution. Our goal is to stop strife and conflict. And our goal should always be to have a resolution, a restoration of the relationship. We shouldn't be set on proving ourselves right and other people wrong. We're not to vanquish our brothers and sisters, but we're to build them up. We're to be an encouragement. It was Woodrow Wilson who once said, If you come at me with your fist doubled, I think I can promise you that mine will double as fast as yours. But if you come to me and say, let's sit down and take counsel together, and if we differ from one another, we'll find that we are not so far apart after all, and the points that which we differ are few, and the points on which we agree are many, and if we only have the patience and the candor and the desire to get along, we will. And so when the workers took these steps, the team got back to their job and they were that they were commissioned to do, and if We will allow strife and discord to go on. Kingdom work will come to a standstill. The ministry of Spooner Baptist will come to a standstill. The ministry that your family has will come to a a standstill if you allow strife and discord to go on. But if we would follow Nehemiah's example, my guess is that 95% of our problems would be solved. I understand, and maybe, I don't know, maybe Brother Thompson, Jack Thompson, has has done one of these uh, mountings before. I, I, never, I didn't ask him, but I understand in an old German monastery, monastery and uh, there was two racks of ancient deer hant- antlers permanently interlocked. Apparently, the Animals had been fighting fiercely, and their horns became so entangled they could not be disengaged. And as a result, they both died of starvation. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who is tangled up with somebody right now. I hope not. But I dare say there could be some strife in your life. There could be some strife in your home. There could be some strife going on in your workplace. Don't let it fester. I love how the people responded to Nehemiah's message here and his challenge in verse 13 when it said, The people did according to this purpose. 
I don't know about you, but I trust you're willing to make a promise this, even this morning and before God to stop the strife in your life. And perhaps if there is that which is causing strife in our ministry, that you'll do business with God and do business with the person you're in disagreement with. Let's bow in prayer.